You're listening to The Solution, a podcast by Growers Mineral. I'm your host, Russell Bobel. In this ongoing series, we will be taking a look at the book More Food from Soil Science, a book written in 1965 by one of Growers' co-founders, Dr. V.A. Tejans. Chapter 11. Nitrogen depends on sunshine to be useful for increasing crop yields. In the early history of our civilization, we had sun worshippers. Life depends on sunshine. Whether the worshippers realized this is questionable. It is a happy coincidence that sunshine is free. Nitrogen is all around us as a gas, and it is free except that we have to change it slightly so that we can apply it to plants in a form they can get at. Some plants can make use of the nitrogen in the air. Some of this nitrogen also becomes fixed in the soil. Both nitrogen and sunshine are inexhaustible for all practical purposes, but we must learn how to get the most good from both nitrogen and sunshine. If nitrogen is too abundant, it can cause us trouble. Nitrogen and sunshine are our source of proteins and amino acids in plants. Leguminous crops like beans, clovers, and alfalfa, as a result of evolutionary processes, have joined company with certain bacteria which live in root structures, so that indirectly legumes use the atmospheric nitrogen for their growth. All non-leguminous crops must have nitrogen supplied to them either as a foliage spray, as nitrogenous salt, or as gases applied to the soil. In most cases, Soils can be treated so that sufficient nitrogen is available to grow a crop. Considerable nitrogen is applied to the soil with rainfall. The electricity of lightning changes the gas to salts, which in turn are carried into the soil by rainfall. This amounts to considerable quantities some seasons. Also, there are bacteria in the soil which seem to be able to change the gaseous nitrogen into proteins in their bodies. When they die, the proteins through oxidation become available to plants. Up to a certain volume of growth, we have a system that will supply the world population for years to come, providing we don't expect too large a volume of growth from a certain area. Calcium is needed to make the chemical process work efficiently. We are assured, with a little cooperation on our part, of being able to feed people for many generations to come with what nitrogen nature fixes in our soil. All scientists have to do is find ways and means to make the chemical process in the air and soil work efficiently. I am sure that since we have the means to apply sufficient calcium taken from the vast stores of limestone all around us and ground finely enough, we can depend on having yields equal to more than our average yields without any further applications of fertilizer. This does not mean that fertilizers would not increase yields. It simply means that we are blessed with a permanent plant food supply that needs to be made available providing we don't interfere too much with crop growth. We have interfered in many cases by dumping a lot of fertilizer on land that didn't need it. So much nitrogen has been applied that many farm wells have been condemned because of the nitrate content. This nitrate begins to change to nitrite forms, which are toxic to animals and humans. My main concern here is the nitrogen and oxygen in the soil, because they are probably the main consideration in comparing yields from high and low organic soils. Up to the present, it has seemed easier to get 175 bushels of corn from a mineral soil, which is classed submarginal, 
than to get that yield on a black prairie soil, which is potentially 300 bushel an acre land. The type of growth on the mineral soil is more compact, less voluminous, and more fibrous, which, in the growth of the stock, makes it sturdier. The color may be a rather grayish green. Corn on high organic matter has a weedy appearance. It is a dark green, almost black green. The leaves are larger and the stalks are taller. The stalks are weaker with far less fiber in them. The roots are not very well developed and the ears are apt to be smaller and unevenly filled. Because of this type of growth, there isn't much that can be done. The plant absorbs too much nitrogen for it to utilize with the sunshine available. Until we know more about how to make a plant use a higher percentage of the sunshine that floods the leaves, we must do a better job of controlling the nitrogen supply. Crowding the plants may help to a certain point, as long as the crowding does not cause sterile stalks. This type of growth requires more rainfall because of its greater succulents. Such plants do not have the fiber to strengthen them and usually tip over soon after maturity. This is due to the fact that the plants are absorbing too much nitrogen for the sunshine that they receive. If the season is unusually cloudy, the plants are weaker because the lack of sunshine has the same effect as adding more nitrogen. Grape growers speak of bad and good vintage years. A lot of bright weather makes for good quality wine because there is plenty of sugar in the grapes. The amount of nitrogen needed by a crop depends on many factors. It must be used according to the sunshine received. Corn growth on the south slope of a steep hill can use more nitrogen to advantage than that growing on the north or shady side of the hill. Pineapple and sugarcane growers found this out many years ago. They apply nitrogen according to the sunshine they get. The use of nitrogen by the plant is a complicated process and involves many changes. Few people who use nitrogen for growing crops have no more than a hazy idea why they use it. They seldom distinguish between nitrogen, phosphorus, potash, and complete fertilizer. Nitrogen, with the help of sunshine by means of the green coloring matter, becomes a protein. The changes are as follows. Atmospheric nitrogen from the air is first changed to nitrous oxide by means of lightning and is washed into the sod as rainwater, nitrogen and electric spark, nitrogen and legume bacteria, nitrogen and bacteria in the soil or ammonia added to the soil. Eventually, all this nitrogen is converted into nitric acid. Nitric acid is neutralized by limestone and becomes nitrate nitrogen in the form of calcium nitrate or ammonium nitrate, which enters the plant root as a nitrate form. In the roots, nitrate is changed by ammonia by means of a plant enzyme. The ammonia neutralizes an organic acid, which forms amino acids, the building blocks for proteins. Thus, the nitrogen becomes part of the plant sap and functions as fuel does for an engine. While this process is taking place, sugar is needed to supply energy and byproducts to keep the nitrogen assimilation process going. At the same time, the following process is going on in the leaves. Carbon dioxide from the air, plus water taken into the roots, plus chlorophyll in the leaves and sunshine build sugar, starches, and fiber. Somewhere in the process, some carbohydrates go, one, to furnish stored energy. 2. To make protein, 3. To make fiber to give the plant strength, 4. To form roots, 
Five, to store in seeds, tubers, or bulbs in the plant to produce a yield. Number one comes first, then number two is satisfied as long as nitrogen holds out. Then three and four are taken care of, and if there is any left, it goes into budding seeds and storage organs like tubers and bulbs. It is this surplus energy that, stored, makes our yield. In other words, nitrogen is very important, whether it comes from what nature supplies or what man applies. If nature does not supply enough nitrogen to produce the maximum yield, then it is up to the grower to supply some, either as anhydrous ammonia urea or ammonium nitrate. If, however, there is enough nitrogen in the soil, which might well be the case in heavily manured or high organic matter soils that are well limed, then the extra nitrogen the grower puts on might well be harmful to his crops. It could do damage in the following ways, particularly in a season of normal rainfall. 1. Too much nitrogen could make a weak root system. It reduces proper feeding in the soil. 2. Too much nitrogen could make a weak stalk, which would cause the grain to lodge or break over when maturing. 3. Too much nitrogen could use up so much starch that the pollen in flowers might not get enough. This would mean sterile flowers and reduce the kernels of an ear of corn, a head of oats, or wheat, or form small potatoes. 4. Too much nitrogen could make certain crops bitter in flavor, so that animals would not eat pasture grass or hay. It will make fruit sour. It will make cucumbers and melons bitter. It will keep apples from getting red. It will make strawberries so soft that you can't ship them. 5. Too much nitrogen makes crops mature slowly. Too much nitrogen makes corn shrink heavily in storage. I made a preliminary check to estimate the yield on one cornfield. It was a river bottom field, and by the size of the stalks and size of the ears, we knew the corn plants had access to more nitrogen than they needed. The ears were starting to dent. We counted the large ears on 100 stalks in various parts of the field, and from 90 out of 100 stalks having large ears, we estimated the yield and decided we should get at least 150 bushels. When the corn was harvested, it yielded 82 bushels. The grower said he couldn't figure out why there were so few big ears. I told him that he could have expected that because there was so much water in the cobs that when the corn ripened, the water was gradually driven off, causing considerably more than normal shrinkage. The sugar, starch, and fiber became watery, which may cause an ear to weigh a pound, but 50% of that weight is water. Just to show how this works, I helped check two fields of corn, both of which seemed to have exceptional possibilities for high yields. The first field checked out at 208 bushels of corn, with 26% moisture in the kernels on September 1st. We did not check the shelling percentage on either field. This soil needed considerable lime, but had been manured heavily. Rainfall was good. On October 10th, when the corn was harvested, the yield of number two corn was 138 bushels. This was a high shrinkage. Another field, which we checked at the same time, had an estimated yield of 217 bushels, but when it was harvested, yield 194 bushels number two corn. Shrinkage was very light. The field was heavily limed, but no manure or nitrogen had been applied. This corn was properly ripened and would keep under most conditions of moisture. Since nitrogen is so important in so many ways, it is important to explain what happens under varying growth conditions, because it makes so much difference in the quality of the ripened product. 
unlimited nitrogen, water, high temperature, and too little calcium can spell disaster to quality in many crops. On one farm, a hundred acres of melons tasted like green cucumbers when they were ready for market. When the night temperature dropped below 60 degrees and the humidity dropped below 40%, the melons developed a reasonably good flavor. The following explains what happened. Nitrogen taken in at first forms amino acids, which are soluble. They are associated with water, especially when calcium is low. A process of water removal takes place and many amino acids merge to form a protein molecule and separated water. The water is not combined and the protein is no longer soluble. This reaction is a ripening process as chemically bound water molecules are released and the dry matter becomes more concentrated. Amino acids and sugar, as well as some starches, have water molecules diffused through a sap. When a kernel of corn is formed, it contains a very thin sap. As growth proceeds, amino acids and sugars are transported to the kernel, and the sap begins to thicken. As it becomes quite concentrated and begins to become milky, starch is beginning to form, and the sap becomes less soluble in water. Some of the sugar is condensed to starch, and amino acids formed from nitrogen, begin to condense to protein. A kernel of corn then begins to release water, and maturation has started. Less water is held in a chemical state. Such a kernel, if dried, will grow, but the seedling may be weak. The dough and dent stages are advanced ripening stages as more proteins and starches are being formed and more water is released. The interesting thing to remember is that there must be a surplus of starch. If the plants keep on absorbing nitrogen freely, succulence in the plant is maintained and starch is slow to accumulate. I was asked by a peach grower how to prolong the harvesting season of Alberta peaches because he wanted to sell them at a roadside market. I suggested that he first apply considerable limestone to the sod. Then we set aside five trees in a block. The first block received two pounds of nitrogen per tree, the second four pounds, the third six pounds, and on up to ten pounds per tree. The result was that the more nitrogen the trees received, the later the fruit matured. The last ones ripened six weeks late and were rather bitter, because the nights were too cool to ripen them properly. You can get similar results with any crop. The presence of sufficient calcium tends to ripen the grain or fruit in shorter time. It tends to drive water out of the tissue. The type of proteins in hay have a lot to do with the curing of hay. Hay crushers came into use because the soil was low in calcium and too heavily fertilized. Hay grown on well-limed sod doesn't have to be crushed to make it cure properly because it gives up its water readily. In other words, the dry matter that is built up, which is protein, starch, fiber, and minute amounts of minerals, is the part that makes up our yields of high-quality crops. When dry matter is produced under conditions of high nitrogen, water, and high temperature, it is made up of amino acids, sugar, and a watery starch, which holds water by chemical bonds. It is slow to ripen because there is much water that has to be released. When Darwin wrote down his observations of the rainforests of the tropics, he stated that he saw very few flowers because the excess moisture, high nitrogen, and weak sunlight prevented plants from flowering and, therefore, no fruit was produced. They had no accumulation of condensed starches or carbohydrates. We have noticed this in wet seasons here in the United States. Weeds grow fast and succulent, just like the crops.
and they produce very little seed. The flowers very often are incapable of setting seed or fruit. When tomatoes make a very vigorous growth, they often will not set fruit. Ordinarily, when a tomato plant doesn't set fruit on the first flowers, the rate of the vine growth is speeded up, which makes it even less likely to set fruit. In cases like that, fields that should have yielded 20 tons of fruit do not produce 2 tons of tomatoes. The careless use of nitrogen has greatly reduced the world's food supply. More attention to and understanding of the place of nitrogen in our crop growth can make a big difference, and the use of just enough nitrogen could double our present food supply. We can't do anything about our sunshine, but we can learn to use nitrogen so that there is enough sunshine to go around. I am convinced that the reason I can grow 150 bushels of corn on submarginal worthless hills is that the nitrogen is there in sufficient amounts to leave enough starch to produce that yield. What is the relationship between phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and other elements and nitrogen assimilation? They serve a purpose. In the above discussion, I assumed that we had an ideal situation, high enough temperatures, sufficient rainfall, and no obstacles in the soil that would prevent the plant from absorbing the nitrogen. The advantage of growing a plant in seed or gravel culture is that one can control the growth and can add or withhold any element. The reason one can't do this in soil is that there are obstacles which must be inactivated to keep the plant growing properly. Growth is the result of two parallel chains of chemical reactions, which support each other. One is the assimilation of mineral and organic ions. The other is the assimilation of carbon dioxide and the manufacture of stored energy, which in the long run constitutes our yields. Phosphorus and sulfur go through similar reactions associated with the nitrate ion. Phosphorus becomes a part of the proteins and nucleic acids, which are necessary to start the storage process of starch, which are also found in the nuclei of the cells. Without them, we probably would not have growth. Proteins, with the help of phosphorus and sulfur, probably help to set up a buffer system in the plants, which prevents rapid change from taking place, and serves as the base exchange complex in the plant, just as chemically active organic matter does in the soil. Sulfur enters into the mustard oils and gives radishes, onions, turnips, and peppers their pungent quality. I assume that they enter into some proteins and such amino acids as histidine and lysine. It doesn't require much sulfur to keep a plant healthy. Potassium from potash doesn't enter into any plant compounds. It has a minute quantity of radioactivity, which seems to be an active part of the potassium ion, and is supposed to serve as a catalyst in promoting certain chemical processes which have to do with the accumulation of sugar and starch. It also has something to do with the control of the iron in the plant. When potassium becomes deficient in the plant, iron seems to become toxic and causes breakdowns of the margined tissues of the leaves. Magnesium is to the green chlorophyll what iron is to human blood. Without it, the plant turns yellow between the veins of the most mature leaves. The younger leaves show deficiency symptoms last. A deficiency of magnesium seems to interfere with the formation of the protection that plants have against sunburn. Of course, chlorophyll must be active or the plant can't manufacture sugar, starch, oils, fats, and fiber. I conducted an experiment in which I grew plants in sand culture in which I maintained certain nutrients at the threshold of deficiency for phosphorus, 
calcium, and magnesium using lima beans as test plants. I harvested the seed and replanted them in pure sand. I grew them to the second true leaf. The results were amazing. Phosphorus deficiency showed an intense, dark green color in the second generation. The seeds all seemed normal when planted. Phosphorus deficiency. The seedlings were very uniform in shape and size. They grew two inches tall and stopped. They were a very dark green, with the perfect growing tip typical of phosphorus deficiency. Magnesium deficiency. These seeds germinated but had no growing tips. The cotyledons opened but no growing tip ever formed. This condition is referred to as bald head. It is very common in some lots of beans grown from seed produced in the western states. Calcium deficiency. An effect similar to magnesium deficiency. Some of the seedlings formed weak growing tips. Boron deficiency. This is very similar to calcium deficiency. Manganese deficiency. The symptoms affect the young leaves. There are many symptoms not characteristic of any one deficiency, which probably are the result of two deficiency symptoms. Plants growing in soil seldom show clear deficiency symptoms. Plants growing in a soil in which the calcium saturation of the base exchange complex is very low will exhibit a multitude of deficiency symptoms. Plants grown in a soil in which roots are injured by a lack of air very often show nitrogen and phosphorus deficiency, probably because the two ions have to be assimilated in the young roots. Very often, therefore, a side dressing of pulverized limestone will correct many different deficiencies. I had occasion to advise a farmer on what looked like severe boron deficiency on very small celery plants. I checked the soil, a sandy loam, and found it was very low in calcium, so I recommended a ton of limestone per acre applied broadcast to the plants and soil. All but the check plants recovered beautifully. The check plants died. Since boron and calcium deficiencies are so much alike, it could have been calcium deficiency. But calcium usually is the last one of the elements to show deficiency. In another case, I had severe phosphorus deficiency on tomatoes that were just beginning to produce flowers. I had never been very successful in correcting phosphorus deficiency with superphosphate, so I dusted considerable limestone over the foliage and on the sod, and they started to grow freely in a week's time. Theoretically, perhaps, this is bad procedure, but if it does the job, it simply means that the limestone releases the elements, increases the base exchange saturation, or corrects acidity. It all comes back to the idea that if we can saturate the base exchange sufficiently, the sod and the plants will begin to function normally, and the plants will begin to grow. At the same time, bacterial activity is increased and more nitrogen is made available. In black sods, this could release so much nitrogen that plants could change from a hard type of growth to a lush succulent growth, which might be a deterrent to maximum yields on that particular field. It might take several years before the nitrogen could be controlled sufficiently to get the maximum yield. This has happened on a number of Illinois sods, where the limestone corrected the low calcium condition on high organic matter soils. In cases like this, I would plant more seed corn to get more plants so that each plant would get less nitrogen. That would make it possible for the sunshine to be used more efficiently.
I have demonstrated many times that a big, lush, rapidly growing plant is not necessary to produce a big yield. I have grown three quarters to one pound ears and sometimes two pound ears on stalks not over six feet tall. Stalks alongside that were eight to ten feet tall did not have a good ear on them. My growers who have grown 175 to 195 bushels of corn an acre did so on stalks that were only seven to eight feet tall. When you can control the growth by controlling the nitrogen, you can plant more seed on an acre. It takes a stalk to produce an ear of corn. Distributing what nitrogen you have among more plants makes it possible for the plant to make more efficient use of the sunlight it receives. Thanks for listening, everyone, to this episode of The Solution. If you'd like to learn more about the Growers Program or anything you heard in this podcast, visit our website at growersmineral.com. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Thanks. We'll see you guys in the next episode.